Turn with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 53. In uh, looking at the dates in which I've dealt with certain passages of Scripture over the years, if my dates are correct, I was rather surprised that it, it had been several years since uh, I have preached from Isaiah chapter 53 upon the occasion of the Lord's table. This has been called the gospel according to Isaiah. Of course, we have many passages in the Old Testament that, uh, that declare the gospel to us. We have those that show us the person of our Lord that takes place in Isaiah's prophecy as well. As a matter of fact, it's laid out like the gospels in a sense, which we'll consider somewhat later. But it's quite a passage of scripture telling us what Messiah would do, what the promised one would do when he would come. And uh, the glory of salvation is surely in this chapter. I'm going to read the whole chapter beginning at verse 1. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That's a very important word, revealed. It's God who must make Christ known. It's he who must bring about the reality of his salvation in the hearts of men. By nature, Isaiah is going on to show that what happened when the Lord Jesus came and the appearance he had and the conditions of his life, that those things caused the Jewish nation to stumble at him. Matter of fact, earlier in Isaiah, the Lord had called a rock of offense to them. And so Isaiah goes on to write, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. But in all this humiliation that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered from the Jewish nation, yet his purpose was glorious. Surely, he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. 
and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. In the first chapter of this great prophecy of Isaiah, God speaks through the prophet. He says, Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. We learn, of course, as we progress in Isaiah, why that is so. Why those who come to know what God has given in his son and what the son has accomplished by the work he was given to do and those who are brought to a genuine repentance from sin and who come to trust in this one God's sins that they have a salvation that is greater than anything in this world or anything that could possibly be the son of God eternal in his generation. The Son of God was given a work to do by the Father, God the Father. He would carry out that work in perfection. Matter of fact, he would say in John chapter 6, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. He would say at another time, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So completely would he be taken up with doing the work he was given to do that when he was a 12-year-old boy, when he was in the temple among the doctors of the law, he astounded them with his answers. Mary and Joseph had gone three days because the feast had been over and they were back on the way home, supposed that he was among some of their family members. So they had to go back and they found him. They found him and essentially said, why have you dealt with us like this? But he gently corrects them when he says, wist ye not? that I must be about my father's business. That was what he came to do, the will of his father. 
he continued with them then and was subject to them as a child of parents. The father whom the son came to reveal, to make known, whom the son would glorify. The father would turn the eyes of our souls to gaze upon with adoring wonder his son, the son of his love, his son from eternity. Then the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in giving his called ones to come and know who it is, who he is, who was sent. He turns our hearts to ponder why he came. First, we have, as in the Gospels, so we have in Isaiah. We have who he is who came. We have his person made known to us. Then we have his work made known to us. And considering the order of the prophecy of Isaiah, of course, as you should know, was seven centuries before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ by divine incarnation, we have the same order as in the Gospels. Matter of fact, we have what has been called the very marrow of the Gospel itself. He whose name is Emmanuel, and that drawn from Isaiah's prophecy, which means God with us. He would come into the world. He would take upon him flesh and blood, not by normal human generation, but by a unique and wondrous birth, a virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, as we have in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And of course, when young Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she was to bear a child, in her confusion, she says, how did that take place? I've never known a man that is in any type of sexual relationship. She was a virgin. He said, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. Of course we have this also in Isaiah, don't we? In Isaiah chapter 9, verses and passages you should be quite familiar with. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. His name? Wonderful. Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. We have an Isaiah taught us that one would come to prepare the way of Jehovah. The way of the coming of God. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of Jehovah. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Of course, we have that in Isaiah chapter 40. We know who that is. This ties in with what we were preaching last Lord's Day. 
John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He would be the special messenger that would be sent to prepare for the incarnate coming of Jehovah who would come in their midst. He declares himself in John chapter 1, the voice. He is the voice. He whom we know to be John the Baptist began to declare the message that would be shouted to the nation and then to the world. As in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9, Behold your God. Isaiah declares to us the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Son of God. John the Baptist would say, I am not that Christ, but am sent before him. And would add, he must increase, but I must decrease. The Father would have the eyes drawn away from men, away from the greatest of men. He would have the eyes drawn away, whether that be a Moses, or one of the prophets, or the godliest of men who ever lived, and look upon the only one, the only one to be preached and to be proclaimed. So in Isaiah chapter 42, the prophet is given to write God speaking through him. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, and whom my soul delighteth. He calls us to behold the servant he sent. My servant. But he calls him in Isaiah 53, my righteous servant. When he comes, when he is baptized of John, the Father's word comes, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The servant is the Son of God. The servant who is coming into the world is the Son of the living God. And the work that this servant son was given to fulfill and finish was the most important work anyone ever has been given to do. As in the 11th verse of Isaiah 53, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their sins. Did not the Baptist, when pointing him out, echoing the Father's behold, also give the reason he came? The Father in Isaiah, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. John the Baptist, when he sees him, when it's made known to him why he came, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. The sacrifice that the Father himself gave to not only forgive sin, 
That's wondrous. Forgiveness is glorious. Forgiveness is blessed. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But not only to forgive sin, to take it away. To take away the sins of all who are brought to know and bow in faith to the Son and servant of God. This is the incredible message we want to consider. Again, when you look into Isaiah 53, verse 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Here we have our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the sent one of the Father, the servant. Here we have him in a threefold character. He is the Father's righteous servant. And how important that is to our understanding of the gospel. The righteous servant. And then, he is the sin bearer. And then, he is the justifier. No, it's all he does. He does all of it. It's all done by him. Salvation is indeed of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who saves completely his own work. So we would say, let the very heavens be bowed. Let the angels who worshipped him when he came into the world, let him stand at all. Because he, he who is called in Romans chapter 9, God over all blessed forever. He would lay aside the manifestation of his divine glory to become a servant. What a glorious thing we have. He who made the sun, the moon, the stars, he was the reason for their existence. He is the reason why the world has not yet come to an end. He who upholds all things by the word of his power. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Wondrous. Wondrous. So wondrous we can scarcely take it in. He became our servant. Think about that. The Creator became our servant. The second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, became our servant. Not only as he did the night before Calvary to wash our feet as he did those disciples that evening but to cleanse away the filth of sin from us every defilement to remove it for though our sins be red as crimson 
they shall be as white as snow. He came. He didn't come to serve or to be served. He came rather to serve. He came as a servant. He came to be the one sacrifice to remove forever our sins. He came to pay the full price that was owed to the justice of God for the sins of others. To take away every transgression, no matter how vile, no small thing, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And all behind it is a love that we could not deserve because we did not deserve. For we who know and believe we have been given the wondrous gift of a saving faith that gives us the knowledge of him. We can say with the Apostle Paul, as he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, before we declare, he gave himself for me. He loved me and gave himself for me. Early this morning, often crying to the Lord how he could love such a wretch as me. How glorious and wondrous a sovereign love, not because of anything in us, but because he chose to love. Our text makes known that the reason he became our servant was to perform the will of his Father so that he was only a servant to us because he was the servant of his Father who said through Isaiah, Behold my servant and calls him my righteous servant. The Father was well pleased with the Son. Are you? <laughs> I am. <laughs> There's none like him. Physical beauty, outward beauty, circumstantial beauty. Men could not behold that. But those who come to behold him by faith, those who come to know him, those who are embraced by his glorious love, find him fairer than 10,000. They find him altogether lovely. The father was well pleased with his son. Are you? In his life, the son was without spot and without blemish. That had to be the case of acceptable sacrifice without spot, without blemish, perfect in his obedience to the Father, in our place, 
performing the obedience we owed to God. Rendering service that we miserably failed to do. He our Lord. He's the righteous servant. Not only in his body, but in his very being. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. His obedience. The obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The obedience of the Son of Mary, who was the Son of God. It was with every power and every passion of his holy nature. Perfectly obedient at all times, under all circumstances, in mind, in body, righteous in every jot and tittle. The only perfectly righteous man to ever be on the face of the earth. There are those who come out with, why do good people suffer bad things? There was only one good person in all the earth from the time of Adam's fall. And he suffered more than anybody. No suffering. No suffering would turn him from his heart's passion. His heart's passion was to do the will of the Father. The Father loveth the Son. The Son loveth the Father. And as had been said, profound words taken in. <laughs> he suffered in his service. And he served in his suffering. He fulfilled all righteousness. You remember that's why he said to John the Baptist. Who said. I don't, you don't need to be baptized. You don't have any sin. In essence is what he was saying. That was quite a testimony. I need to be baptized of thee. Suffer it to be so now. He was to fulfill all righteousness, not just that, because the baptism was divinely appointed, but all righteousness. The perfectly righteous one, the only perfectly righteous one, the only truly good one since the fall of Adam. The Father found not a single sin in his son. Not a one. Not a sin of commission. Not a sin of omission. And the Lord Jesus Christ, concluding his course in this world, coming down a few hours from the time when he would come under the travail of his soul and bear the sins of many, The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, would state something no one else could ever state. 
in essence he was saying the prince of this world cometh Satan is the prince of this world and this world system of ungodliness the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me nothing if anybody can find wrong and sin and accuse guess who that would be that would be the devil himself the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me the spotless lamb of God the holy lamb of God he was the only servant that God accepted in his own right the eternal son became a man God was manifest in the flesh he who has the same divine nature as the father became a man And as a man, God accepts him in his own person. The perfectly righteous one. It's God himself, the Father, who calls him my righteous servant. To think that his righteousness is accounted the righteousness of all who are effectually called by his gospel who come by the grace of God to behold him by faith to think that he is our righteousness the Lord our righteousness called in Jeremiah 23 Jehovah our righteousness to think that he is our righteousness. That all who savingly believe in him are accepted in him, in the beloved. That all he has done is yours who look to him alone and trust him only. That's a greater glory than the sun in the sky could ever beam forth with its brilliant light. This righteous servant says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. What a gospel. But then, we consider something so incredibly blessed as we look at the second characteristic we mentioned concerning the Father's righteous servant. It has been called the most wonderful thing in all this book of wonders. He's the sin bearer. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant Justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He's the sin bearer. We have before us the cardinal doctrine of all divine revelation. 
We have before us the very central truth of the gospel itself. What is it? The Son of God became a man to bear and take away the sins of his people. What a message. We see this throughout the chapter, of course, in Isaiah 53. The verses, in verses 5 and 6, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We see it in verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. We see it in verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Lord Jesus fulfilled a very important type in the Old Testament. God appointed sacrifice. He gave the tabernacle, later the temple. He abode symbolically in what was called the holiest place, the holy of holies. He could not be approached. Anyone who attempted to approach him, they would die immediately. He dwelt there in what was called the Shekinah by the Jews. That means the presence Only one man, once a year, could enter the Holy of Holies. You remember who that was? The high priest of Israel. Only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, could he enter. But he would have to enter with blood. With the blood of the sacrificial animal that was killed. And then on that day, the priest had another goat. Over that other goat, he confessed the sins of the people, putting his hand on that goat. Then what did he do? He sent that goat away. Completely out of sight. The scapegoat. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled every type of those Old Testament sacrifices. They were prophetic in nature. The Son of God did not come to only forgive sin. He came to take it away. To remove it as far as the east is from the west. What a gospel. I have a hard time containing my emotions when I preach this gospel. There is nothing like it. How few seem to hear it. That's in God's hands. And rejoice in the gloriousness of God's salvation. Showing it by their lives and what they seek after. Take notice in verse 11. 
he shall bear their iniquities. How many iniquities of theirs shall he bear? Of those given to him as they are called by him. How many of their iniquities does he take away? All of them. All of them. No matter how grievous, no matter how great or small, they were all laid on him. Take note, laid on him. As he died in the stead, of the many whom he would save. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree as in Peter's drawing from this passage in 1 Peter 2. All of them. All of them. No matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how much it torments the conscience, he bore them all. He took them unto himself. They were laid on him. They weren't in him. In him is no sin. In, on the cross, in him is no sin. Sin was laid on him. He took them unto himself. He took the inherited sin that we inherited from Adam and all the sins ever committed by his own elect redeemed and omitted them. Remitted them. He made them his own. He made them his own. Though personally he never sinned. Not in thought, word, or deed. From the cradle to the cross. Yet the sins of many were laid on him. Pay close attention to the great truth. It was not simply our guilt. It was not simply our punishment. Our sins were laid on him. Our sins were laid on him. No sin. Not one single transgression can be laid against those in whose stead Christ bore all their sins. Those who are brought to know and believe Him because justice smiles and asks no more. 
no little thing. And Paul expounds this glorious gospel in the book of Romans. And he writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Sin will at times plague our minds. Plague mine. I can think of sins in past when they come to memory. The most grievous, painful things to remember that I can remember. Because I'll tell you what happens when one is saved by God's grace, when God brings life to them in Christ and they come to know Him. They come to hate sin as the worst thing there is. They come to hate what they once loved, literally. And to love what they once hated. Sin may plague your memory at times. It might cause you to grieve and mourn at the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Even to believers in Romans, Paul spoke of those things of which they were then ashamed. I'm ashamed of my sins. Are you ashamed of your past sins? Are you ashamed of your transgressions? Oh, if young people could hear. There are certain things we want them to be kept from. They're sinners. They don't understand that one of these days that thing is going to cause them more trouble than anything in the world if they engage in what they know to be wrong. Sin will plague the memory. But for those whom Christ saves by his wondrous grace, whom he justifies, God promises their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. Is that a small thing? No. No, it's not. That's a huge thing. That's a bigger thing than anything in this world. Christ died for them. Not only did he provide forgiveness, he removes those sins as far as the east is from the west, as if they were never committed. What a Savior. What a salvation. And because he bore them, because they were laid on him, because he made them his own while on the cross to pay the price to the justice of God that was owed for all those many for whom he was shedding his blood. Those who are saved by God's grace need no longer fear God's condemning judgment. Isn't that wondrous? My brother and sister in Christ, 
my dearly beloved, who've come by God's effectual call to know his son, to trust him only, to rely upon the great truth that he completed salvation and finished the work. It was not an angel who bore your sins and took them away. Not the most godly man who ever lived apart from him who bore your sins. It wasn't Moses who bore your sins. None of the prophets bore your sins. But the judge himself bore your sins. The Son of God bore your sins, and he is the judge of the world. The judge of the world bore your sins. Then we should indeed feel very safe, shouldn't we? We should be unsafe had anyone else desired to save you by taking your place, desiring to bear your sins. But why should we fear the judgment of God, the condemning judgment? Yes, we have a reverential fear because we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to account for our lives after God saves us. But not for condemnation. Why should we fear when the very sent one of the Father undertook to bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Sin is horrendous. It's the worst thing there is in all the universe. Sin against God is the worst evil there is. And no more is this, or nowhere is this shown more loathsome to God. Sin, God is a, a sin-hating God. He is still infinitely holy. And sin will not go unpunished. And his hatred for it is shown no higher than where? At the cross. When his own son bore our sins in his own body on the tree, God did not spare him. There is no place sin is shown in its horrendous evil higher than there. That God hates sin. Matter of fact, verse 10 declares, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Notice, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. If our sins were to be remitted, taken away, Put away as far as the east is from the west. 
if our sins were to be remitted, if they were to be forever put away, the Son must bear all of the wrath of God against them in our place. In our stead. Yet behind all of it was what? Behind all of it was a love that is more incredible than the creation of the universe. Behind it is a love that comes from God and God only. Not drawn from anything in us. Having no respect to us. Only his own perfect will called the good pleasure of his will. Because he is love. He chose a vast multitude out of this fallen world from every nation, from every ethnic group, from both genders. And when he calls by his gospel and by the work of his Holy Spirit, he pours that love into our hearts. As in Romans chapter 5 verse 6, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And how does he shed that love abroad so in our hearts that it floods our souls? The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For a righteous man some would dare to die. For others, as Paul says, God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We never are to get away from that. We're never to put that behind us. There is nothing deeper than that. The gloriousness of that grace, that wondrous salvation, that Christ died for our sins. That the Son of God, holy in His own person, became sin for us. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when we behold the dying lamb. That's the message of John the Baptist wasn't it? Behold the lamb of God. When we behold the dying lamb. When we hear his awful cries. When we recognize. That he was in our place. Well you know he bore every sin. And suffered all of the wrath of God in our place. Then we exclaim, he loved me. And gave himself for me. And I want to be his. His alone. His forever. 
What a wondrous thing. Having all these tests last couple of weeks and uh, finding out there was something in my kidney. They didn't know what it was, so they had to have an MRI. I didn't know what it was. I didn't think it was all that bad, really. But I got to thinking about that. Well, if it is something really, really bad, I might be you know, leaving the world pretty soon. I might be absent from the body and present with the Lord. The only hope I would have, the only hope I do have, the only hope you have, is Christ died for me. That he offered himself in my place. That he has brought me to look to and trust in him only. Well, it looks like I'm going to be around with you for a pretty good while. <laughs> but that's still in God's hands. But, but you will sometimes, and I guess my wife will testify to that, when you find out some things, you wonder about some things, you begin thinking, well, what if I die? What if my time has come? It will come. My time will come. Your time will come. You're not in this world for a very long period. I used to think when I was young, boy, we got a long time. I've been here what most would consider a pretty long time. But looking back over it, I'm astounded at how short it seems. I'm astounded when I think of things when I was young, when I was just a boy, and I can remember them sometimes as if it was yesterday. I don't know what happened yesterday, but I can remember those things. <laughs> You're going to leave. Your time will come. For some it'll be much younger. For some older. It's in God's hands. What's it going to be when that time comes? What's it going to be? You need not fear death. If you know the one I have proclaimed this morning. If you have a real, genuine trust in Him, and you comprehend the wondrousness of this gospel, you near not, need not fear death. I fear dying. I fear the process, but not death itself. Thirdly, not only did He bear the sins of many, but the many whose sins he bore are given his righteousness. They're given his righteousness. Therefore, he shall justify many. The very moment that a sinner is brought to see Christ as the Son of God in truth, the very moment one is brought to behold him dying as the death of their sins. The very moment they come to believe in truth and trust him in reality and only. They're as righteous in the sight of God as he is. Isn't that astounding truth? God accepts them as 
righteous as his son. None can condemn them. None can condemn whom God justifies. Because every accusation is met by one glorious truth. Whether that accusation come from us and cause doubts in us, whether that accusation come from others, whether that accusation come from that old serpent, the devil, the accuser, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. There's one hope only of justification, none other. And it is this. For when accusation of sin comes against a believer, it is God who can say, those sins I laid on Christ. Punished Christ in their place. His obedience is their obedience. I take him or her for myself. Not because of what they are. But because of what my son is. Wisdom. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. They are now reckoned in Christ's stead as he was reckoned in theirs. We could not comprehend a more blessed gospel than that which God has given us. And how shall the Lord Jesus Christ bring about their justification? Our text says, by his knowledge. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Well, of course, he knows himself thoroughly. He knows the Father. None other could possibly know the Father. No man has seen the Father, he says at any time. The Son, he had seen the Father. He's of the same nature as the Father. Only God can see God. No man can see God. But the Son does. He knows the Father perfectly. He knows himself perfectly. And he is able to give us the knowledge of himself. That's called divine revelation. The revealing of who he is to the soul. As a matter of fact, our text says by his knowledge. That reads quite well. Proper translation in our King James. It also could have the nuance, we're told by Hebrew scholars, of meaning by the knowledge of him. So it includes our knowledge of him. Those who know God come to know God by his making God known to them. He does that. 
All things are delivered unto me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he, to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Has he revealed God to you? Has he made the Father known to you? Do you see the Father in him? All who savingly believe have been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what happens to everyone whom he teaches? Everyone he teaches comes to him. They come to him. His arms are open to them. They flee to him. They want him. The soul that comes to learn of him, to believe him, to trust in him alone, has been the recipient of his teaching. He teaches. By his spirit. The whole way. Of receiving the wondrous benefits. Of Christ's one eternal sacrifice for sin. Not by doing. But by knowing. For tears. Effort. Anything else. Could not remove one single sin. Not one. But looking to him only. Looking to him alone. Trusting him alone. Believing that his death was the death for your sins. That he bore your sins. That he alone is your sin bearer. If you look to him and trust in him and come to him. It's all the same really. Not a single sin remains on you. He bore them. All at the same time, something wondrousness takes place. Something so glorious I can scarcely know how to proclaim it aright. You know, I had one great cry to God as a young preacher. I'm an old preacher now, but as a, as a young pastor and preacher, let me preach Christ. Let me preach Him. Let me proclaim Him. Let me declare Him. Let me increase in it because He's more glorious than I've ever gotten out or could. Still there. What a glorious thing. That he takes away your sins. You know what he gives you? You know what he gives you? His righteousness. His righteousness. 
accounted yours. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Your sins for his righteousness. Your sins for his righteousness. By faith alone. Through faith only. And it's yours the moment you quit trying and start believing. One more thing. No man could ever have devised such a gospel. It would never have entered into human thinking comes from God justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus well there are those who object to this gospel they don't like this gospel they like a gospel that adds human effort and works but that's not the saving gospel that's given in Scripture. They like a gospel that adds free will to it. It's their decision. No, it's Christ's decision. It's God's decision. And then they would object that this way gives a license for one to go on sinning. Well, if that's what they believe, they haven't learned Christ to write. One who comes to behold the Lamb of God slain for their sins. One who comes to behold and comprehend anything of what it took to redeem them and take away their sins. They hate sin with a passion then. They hate it. Their whole desire is to be free from it, not only because Christ died for them, but by the work of God's Spirit in them to guide them in right paths. Whoever is the recipient of this wondrous transference, my sins for his righteousness, they have newness of life. They have a new heart. Not the heart they had before. God creates a new heart in them in regeneration. They have new desires placed within them. Desires that weren't there before. Before it was the desire for the world. Oh, there might become those that have become religious, but they still love the world. They still love the things. The things these things aren't the things that thrill their soul. <laughs> they have new desires. And they want to live for Christ only and be His only. They can cry out, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. More than all in Thee I find. What a gospel.
What a gospel. What a Savior. What a Savior. What number is that? That says, Thou, O Christ, art all I want. Jesus, lover of my soul. What number? 421? 421. Let's sing that. Four twenty-seven. Which which tune? I don't know, but some might know music. Second tune. Four twenty-second. Uh, Four twenty-seven. Second tune. 